Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 14 of the Fire Nuggets podcast. Uh, it is me and Nick Ladine here today. We don't have Joey. Uh, you know, uh, he's, he's out there busy doing stuff today. But we're happy to have Nick Dingus as our guest today. So we're just going to jump right into it, Nick. Um, you're an assistant chief on Sublette Fire Department here in Illinois. Uh, go in and fill us in about Sublette Fire Department, what you do there, how long you've been there, and uh, anything else you want to add. Yeah, well, thank you, uh, Jeffrey and Nick, for having me, number one. Uh, I've been in the fire service uh, for 25 years. Uh, started out as a volunteer in Sublette, Illinois. Uh, went from there to Macomb back in 1998. Uh, was a live-in student fireman from 98 into 01, and then went to the Rockford Fire Department 01 to 08. Uh, when I moved back to the area, I actually joined the Amway Fire Department. Uh, Jeffrey was a cadet for us on the Amboy Fire Department, which was pr pretty darn cool. Um, I still am active with that department uh, today. I was a captain there, and then I was able to move home uh, back to my hometown of Sublette in 2012. I've been the assistant chief there for the last couple of years. Uh, we have 31 volunteers. Uh, we do fire and EMS. Uh, we cover an area of 72 square miles uh, on the fire side, about 80 plus on the EMS side and uh, run an average of about 200 calls a year. Uh, of that, uh, like everywhere else, about 70% is EMS, uh, but we do run somewhere about 24, 20 to 24 uh, accidents every year and about the same uh, on the fire side. So we're, we're actually located at the corner of three counties, uh, which allow us to go and uh, provide automatic uh, mutual aid to a lot of our neighboring uh, fire departments and partners. Excellent. Uh, so you were on Rockford Fire. Uh, how long are you on there? What companies were you on? And um, anything else you want to add with, with being on Rockford? Uh, as you know, I was on Rockford from 2001 to uh, 2008. So just over seven years. Uh, an incredible group of people. Uh, Rockford, for those not familiar, is the second largest department in the state of Illinois used to be the second largest city uh, they, due to population decline in manufacturing. Uh, they're no longer there. Uh, annually, they do about 30,000 runs a year. Uh, while I was at Rockford, I had some really, really nice assignments. Um, I was down at engine one, uh, ladder two, engine two, quint five, quint seven, quint nine, and engine 10. And then part of that time, uh, the last couple of years, I also was a paramedic. So we would split time between an engine in an ambulance doing 12 and 12 or a ladder in an ambulance. Awesome. Uh, I, I really think it's fascinating your uh, living uh, situation you had when you were down at Western. Uh, can you kind of explain to the listeners what uh, your, your living was for there? Yeah, so they had a neat program while I was in college at Western Illinois University that allowed two students uh, to live in the firehouse in a dorm room. Uh, they're a fully staffed uh, union fire department. Uh, but two of us lived in the firehouse. Uh, we were paid $100 per month. We got a free room. And then when we were not in class, we were either training or going on calls with the department. Um, I really enjoyed my time down there. Uh, when I got uh, hired there in 1998, they had actually transitioned into going on EMS calls for the city. Um, I was an EMT my freshman year in college. A lot of the, the older guys, I don't think quite uh, enjoyed going on EMS calls quite as much as I did, you know, as a young person. So um, I would jump over to the rescue and go on EMS calls whenever I could. I took their call volume from, I think, around 400 calls uh, to double or triple within a couple of years of me being there. And, and, and they can correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say right now they're doing close to 2,000 calls a year uh, at Macomb. Uh, but a great starting point. Uh, great people. Uh, the fire chief was a character, which was a lot of fun. He was also an instructor at the university. And uh, Roger Lunt was our captain of operations at the time. Roger was a long time uh, person working, working at IF, IFSI. And uh, Roger was just a great guy. I still talk to him today and uh, worked with uh, yeah, some really good people, had some great experiences, a great way to, to, to number one, get a college education. Uh, but to get a lot of training in as well and uh, learn about the career fire service from, uh, you know, from that perspective. So I had a wonderful time. Nice. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and talk about uh, your family. 
that's on the job. You, you have a lot of family. Uh, you can kind of dive into that. Yeah, so uh, in our family, we've got 12 of us. So spanning four generations at this time. Uh, my grandfather started uh, in Sublette in the 30s. Uh, my father started in 1957. Uh, he was the assistant fire chief there up until, oh, probably er the early 2000s before he, he retired from actually going on calls. He's still a trustee to this day. He's 86 years old, still makes his trustee meetings every, uh, every month, uh, whenever he can, when his health allows. But uh, a lot of fun. My brother started in 83. And, uh, and he and my father are the ones that really piqued my interest in, in writing on calls as a young person and watching what they did. And when I turned 18, you know, it's, it's what I did as well. The captain of our local fire department came over, gave me an application. I went on Thursday night and I've always said my first call was Friday morning and I was hooked. It was an accident on Route 52. And as soon as that pager went off, uh, it had me for life. And then since then, uh, I've got a sister now that's uh, on the EMS side of the Sublette Fire Department, uh, three brother-in-laws. Um, I think I've got four nephews. Uh, a couple of them are career Rock Island, Illinois, uh, one in Mason City, Iowa. Uh, and then we've recruited a couple cousins as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's very enjoyable. I think one of the most enjoyable things I had was when I left the Rockford Fire Department. Um, I got to take my brother-in-law and two of my nephews into their first working house fire. So uh, four out of the first five guys through the door were, uh, you know, were all, all my blood. So uh, I really couldn't beat that. Nice. Yeah. Family is definitely a nice thing to have in the job, uh, you know, with, with my grandfather dating back starting in the sixties and, you know, now my dad too, uh, which, which I think is kind of cool because my, my grandfather basically grew up with, with your relatives and then the same with my dad with you. So that's, that's always good and fun. Uh, and then the last thing, uh, you're a husband and father. Yeah, correct. So uh, I'm a lifelong, I guess, lifelong guy from Sublette, Illinois. Uh, my heart's in the rural area. That's why I live uh, so far away from, uh, from, from city life. But uh, I've got a daughter that's 15 years old. Uh, actually, she's driving right now, so that worries me a little bit. And then my son is 13. And I think, uh, you know, he'll probably join the fire service here. Uh, shortly. He's lobbying for a cadet program for our fire department. Uh, we'll see where that goes, but uh, he comes down, actually he comes down quite often. If we get a fire or a wreck, he'll come down and clean equipment. Probably knows as much about the equipment as some of the guys and gals on the department, but yeah, just a great kid. And then I've got a wife. Uh, my wife and I have been together now for over 25 years, and she's always been supportive of me, both in, in business life and in the fire service. And, and I think that's, you know, one of the biggest pieces uh, to this is having family involvement and a supportive family in the fire service that, uh, you know, they're always there when things go good, but they're all, more importantly there when things don't go as good. And, uh, and, and boy, I've got, I, I can tell you, I've got the best. My wife is, is phenomenal, a phenomenal sounding board and uh, the rock in, in my life uh, specifically that she's always supported me through a lot of the, you know, dark times as well as some of the best. Yes, Stacy is a very, very good woman. <laughs> uh, she is. And she puts up with me. So that's, uh, yeah, that, that's the key. Yeah. All right. So diving right in here. First question. All right. So I've been uh, pretty blessed to know you uh, pretty close to two decades now. And uh, I've, I've noticed you've never really been a person to, to really get super angry. Now, if you were angry, we knew it was really bad. But you've always uh, tried to look for the positive in the situation. How and why do you do this? Yeah, you know, I think that's something that that I had a couple of mentors in the fire service when I was in Rockford uh, that never really got upset, never really got rattled. Um, Captain Jim Dahlgren, I think, was probably the best at that. You know, we would go to a fair amount of working fires uh, down at Ladder 2, and I never saw the guy get excited at, at anything. And we had several runs, you know, with, with where we would get called for people trapped. Or we'd have fire blowing out of, you know, a, a floor. And never once while we were doing a search or forcing a door or looking for people, did he ever get excited? Did he ever raise his voice? And I think to me, that was a, that was a big deal. And then I was able to learn that at a very young age. I was probably 22, 23, 24 when um, I was assigned with him. And I always thought to myself, if I could be someday like him, you know, did not get upset, not get rattled, not get excited on the radio, 
then uh, that should be the way that we teach all of our young people. And I took that away from Rockford when I moved back uh, to, to the Amboy Sublette area and, uh, and try to treat everything as though it's not my emergency. And I had a, a, another officer tell me that, listen, you know, we never uh, proactively went to these people's homes to solve a problem. Instead, we're there to do the best we can with whatever situation we're dealt. And uh, we've got to keep a good head on our so shoulders and make good sound decisions. So I've never felt like it made the situation any better to raise my voice or get excited. You know, I always try to put all the problems that we see on the fire ground or on an accident scene or on an EMS call into a box and then systematically check those boxes and make sure all of those problems get solved within that incident and we do it in a safe manner. And I hope that that's the way that uh, the, the, the scenes that, that I am in charge of are, uh, you know, are run. Um, I, I just want to always convey that calmness on the fire ground or on an accident scene or uh, during an EMS run that, you know what, we've got a job to do. Uh, you know what, we didn't call them. Uh, they called us. So we've got to go through and make sure we make those problems better, better as best we can. Nice. All right. So whether you know this or not, uh, in my opinion, you've played a huge part in uh, mentorship uh, in the fire service that I've been around uh, pretty much my whole life. Uh, you know, you think back to the guys that was uh, was on the job with us, you know, the Barron's brothers, Warren, Colin, uh, all of us were, were lucky enough to grow up and, and, and be successful and go to good departments and, and you know, have a career out of this. And I uh, think yourself, my dad, you know, Johnny McGraw and, and all those guys played a huge part in our mentorship and how we are successful. So how important do you think it is uh, to be an approachable mentor from the day that a new firefighter starts and continue that mentorship for the rest of their career or, or life, depending on how, how well they look at you? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words, uh, not necessary. Uh, but it was always enjoyable to have, you know, young people around that, that we hopefully could make successful, you know, not just in the fire service, but in life. Um, you know, as, as you know, Jeffrey and Nick, I, I love training and I've been kind of training all of my life with, uh, you know, in different organizations, both as an instructor and taking classes myself. I still take as many classes as, as time allows, but um, I think it's extremely important, you know, and to be approachable you know, maybe not just as an officer or as a fire chief, but also as a firefighter to start teaching those young people the right ways to do things uh, and show passion for the fire service. I think that's that, that's huge. Um, there's not one day that I wake up that I don't enjoy going to call still. Uh, EMS runs, uh, maybe not quite as much. However, I still, uh, you know, get up through the night to go on, on all of those when I'm home at least. But, uh, but I still love when, uh, you know, the pager goes off or the radio is off for a fire and accident. Um, I just, I love the challenge. I love, uh, you know, I love to learn. I think every fire or accident we go to is different and we treat those as such. And to be able to have young people with us going on those calls and then to systematically walk through those challenges with them to solve problems is huge. And then the other part of that, that I think you take one step further as I love after a, a good fire or accident to talk through that incident. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we roundtable things is not uh, enough. And, and I think, Jeffrey, you know, we would come back from a fire or an accident. Usually we'd jump on the tailboard or a whiteboard and we'd talk through those incidents. And, and I'd want people to ask questions. And number one, I'd always acknowledge my shortcomings because I have plenty. You know, I always say experience is, is learning from your mistakes. And I've made plenty of them. But you also have to be able to make those mistakes, which means show up. And, uh, and then when you start, start that conversation in front of people and acknowledge the mistakes you made first, that typically opens up others to talk about what they saw. And then how do we make future incidents better from the discussions we had at the tailboard? And, uh, and I think that's gone a long way. And we still try to do that as much as we can today, because I want to see what, you know, other firefighters, other officers or other chiefs were seeing that maybe I didn't necessarily see. And again, I think that makes us a stronger organization moving forward. And I, and I think it makes you a stronger firefighter, company officer, or chief officer um, from learning from those things. And again, every decision we make maybe isn't 100% correct, but we made a decision. And that's the decision we're going to run with and take till the end of the incident. But if we can find a better way to do it in the future, I'm, I'm all for that. But uh, I think being approachable is, is definitely a key. And then I think what makes me, you know, really proud, not just of you, Jeffrey, but, you know, the Barronses and O'Connells and 
all of those other people that have chosen the fire service as a career, but they're all good people. And hopefully, you know, I'm on some text threads with a lot of you guys and, and uh, still keep in touch quite often and, and still get a lot of phone calls from some of the guys and gals that we mentored for a number of years, you know, just asking questions about life. And I think that's as important as the fire service or fire ground um, is trying to make them successful in their own lives and their own families, which I, I take a lot of pride in that. Yeah, I, I, I can't give enough credit to that uh, cadet program, you know, that we were all a part of. I, I, I think that really helped breed us into uh, responsible and, and good young men and women. So I, uh, I, I can't thank all you guys enough that, that mentored that. It's actually kind of funny that you brought up uh, taking your, your nephew or your cousins and nephews into their first fire because I was telling Nick uh, Ladine before the show that you actually took me into my first house fire like 14 years ago. Uh, and your wife. Remember, I took your wife in. That, that is true. That is true. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I, I've been teaching uh, some fire behavior stuff uh, pretty extensively with, with you over probably the last 10, 12 years, uh, whenever the Sauk Valley uh, flashover got going. Uh, how important do you think that information is and having that available for firefighters uh, is currently? Yeah, well, you know, one of the philosophies I've always had is you can throw a thousand books in a fire and it's never put one out yet. So you can't train enough, you know, whether it's doing exercises like we do at Sauk Valley Community College with the flashover simulator, where we teach fire behavior and flow path. I think that's extremely important. You know, we're, we're in a challenging time, you know, not just in the fire and EMS side of things, but, you know, even on the training side that we don't get enough hands-on training today. Uh, like, like we should, you know, we're trying to follow NFPA 1403. We have uh, way less acquired structures than we ever had, but we're lucky enough to have simulators like the one that Sauk Valley owns, uh, like the one that Amway has, where we can still do live fire training on, on a fairly regular basis. Uh, but we've got to get out and continually, yeah, continually train. And again, I think it's a good networking tool as well, where it brings the brother and sisterhood of the fire service together to uh, to learn things, share experiences, and again, hopefully make the fire service a better place moving forward. All right. So probably not, not too many people know uh, at least the next two things we're going to bring up. Um, so what was the origins behind Leatherhead Tools and what part did you play? Yeah, uh, Leatherhead Fire Tools was, uh, was awesome. Uh, that experience was uh, mostly, I would say, a fluke. So Leatherhead Metal, or I'm sorry, Leatherhead Fire Tools uh, was a culmination of Dasco Pro and Fiberglass Innovations in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, just so happened that they were in our ladder still in, uh, in Rockford. And one of the guys on the job actually that I volunteered with in Sublette, who then became a Rockford fireman, uh, Craig Conderman was working at, at uh, I think Lowe was on his days off. And two gentlemen, which ended up being Rick Parker and Don Dre, uh, the owners of Dasco Pro happened to walk in there, ask questions about, uh, about fire service and fire tools. Uh, Craig kind of piped up and said that he was a fireman on Rockford. And uh, somehow my name came into that conversation as a, an, an idea person. Uh, I received a phone call, I believe the next day, that uh, Don, uh, Don Dre and Rick Parker wanted to meet with me. Uh, they drove down to Amboy. And I, as Jeffrey knows, I've got about 12, 12 leather-bound notebooks of ideas for improvements, not just in the fire service, but in, uh, in life and lots of goofy ideas. And, uh, but it was neat to me that uh, it, I didn't realize that Dasco Pro at the time or Fiberglass Innovations was making some of the profiles uh, for Akron Brass. So as I sat there and they asked me, you know, how the fire service could be improved, I had an idea for high visibility products in the fire service. Um, when I walked through their factories, plural, uh, both the, the forging shop and the fiberglass shop, um, I started to ask a lot of questions. One was regarding bringing that high visibility color into the fire service uh, through pultrusion, and, uh, and, and they said they could do that. So uh, we ended up making our first uh, prototypes, which were the, the ultralight products uh, and the, the dog bone, which is the I-beam pike pole, uh, bringing the colorization to that. And then it was trying to figure out how to forge a, a Halligan bar, which they call the leatherhead bar. And that was a very difficult task uh, from the standpoint that you have to upset uh, the head. We heat up the bar, upset the head, and then have to be able to forge that out 
And that was probably, I would say conservatively, a six month project of figuring that out uh, to make a, a one piece forge bar, which was, was pretty darn neat when, uh, when it was done. And I've got still in my garage to this day, uh, one of the first bars ever, ever made. I had uh, one of the gentlemen in the, with the CNC machine uh, in Dasco engrave my name in just as a reminder of that, that project. Uh, so it ended up, Don and Rick, along with Rob Taylor, wanted to start an independent company, uh, which was called Leatherhead Fire Tools. So we ended up in a little office within Dasco. We, we named, uh, named the company. Um, I was always a big fan of Iowa American. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that, but I was always a huge fan of them. So growing up, we had some Iowa American axes and Halligan bars uh, riding on our apparatus, and they seemed to last forever. Um, at one point, um, I had actually found where some of the dyes were for Iowa American. They were actually in a barn in Iowa, and we tried to purchase those. We didn't have any luck, so that's why we moved forward with making our own heads. Uh, making our own profiles and uh, doing pretty much all of it right in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, some of the things that were pretty neat about that were we had set up uh, then distribution both nationally and internationally. So uh, when I left the fire service or left Rockford in 2008, it was to set up uh, uh, national distribution. So we brought partners on like Ellen Curtis, um, MES, the fire store and, uh, and several others. And then also we got into uh, international distribution and we sold our bars, I want to say about 200 of them into the UN. Uh, so the UN uh, troops were actually uh, using those as breaching tools in Afghanistan back in the, I think the late, uh, late 2000s uh, that we had sold through a company called Donjus, which uh, had some international ties. But uh, that, was, that project was awesome and uh, very happy. I was only able to stay with those guys for a couple of years on a consultant basis. I never was an owner. Uh, but uh, I can tell you, Don Dre, uh, Rick Parker, Rob Taylor, um, and Bobby were just phenomenal guys that uh, were part of that company that I, I can't speak highly enough of. Uh, and still to this day, uh, Brad Groves was another one. Uh, just good people. So uh, great company. It's great to see John Lockwood is hooked up with, with them now and, uh, and some other training organizations because they build a great product. It's all USA made, which I think is pretty darn cool. And it's neat to see uh, those forgings and fiberglass uh, being made in Rockford, Illinois, just down, down the road from, from where we live. Nice. That's, I, I, I always think that's an interesting story that not a lot of people know. So um, thank you for sharing it. Now, this, this one is, is, is awesome. I, I have to just put a plug out there. Probably one of the best fire gloves I've ever worn in, in my career um, and you, uh, you're part of the, the group that started this, uh, being, being Vanguard gloves. Uh, how did it start? How's it going? Where's it going? Anything else you want to share with it too? Yeah. So Vanguard is another one of, uh, the, the companies that, that we've invested in. Uh, obviously love that company very near and dear to my heart. Uh, so I'd known Andy Shapiro, uh, that's my business partner, uh, for a number of years. Andy came from, Another glove manufacturer, in my own opinion, Andy changed the glove industry about 10 years before he and I got together with this project. Um, Andy, Andy is just, he's been a fabric guy and a consultant in the fabric world for probably 30 or 40 years. I always thought Andy was part of the ownership of the other glove company. Um, I didn't realize until about 2007, or I'm sorry, 2016 that, that, uh, that he wasn't. And Andy said, Nick, if I start my own glove company, would you be interested in, uh, in helping get it started? I said, absolutely. Well, Andy knew my background as a, as a firefighter and instructor, started sending me sample gloves back in 16. Um, I would get those gloves in. We would take them into flashovers and do live fire training. Um, I would mark them up. I would send them back to New York, uh, Long Island, where Andy was at. And, uh, and then a couple months later, he'd send me the next iteration of glove. This went on for, uh, I think, a little over a year. And then in December of 2016, uh, Andy sent me a pair of gloves uh, around Christmas time and I, I tried them on. I, I thought, oh, oh boy, those are really good. Like, like maybe the best glove I've ever had on. So I took that glove, called Andy, and I said, listen, if, you are, uh, if you're up for it, I'll take 100 pair. I'll be your first customer. Um, I called him back actually the next day and I said, you know what? Uh, one, I'll do you one better. I said, let's get a booth at FDIC under the Dingus Fire name, and uh, I'll bring you in the booth. We'll take those 100 pairs of gloves, and let's just see if they sell. Uh, Ryan Pennington also was a partner of ours from Jump Seat Views. 
uh, Ryan came with. Uh, the Wednesday before FDIC started, we had sold all of our gloves out, uh, just in the booth during setup. And I thought to myself, yeah, we, we, we've really got something here. Uh, we ended up going to dinner on Thursday night, and I didn't realize Andy uh, really didn't truly have a full business yet and was looking for an investor. So um, after dinner that night, I made the commitment that I would be the investor in this, in this project. And, uh, and then after, after that, it was off to the races. Uh, so we started officially on paper in mid-2017. Uh, Andy runs that company uh, from Long Island, which, uh, which is also really neat. Andy Shapiro is just a, a phenomenal business partner to have and a great operator in this, this industry and in this, this business. And, uh, and we've grown that business now about 4X. Uh, I believe that we are now about 10% of the overall glove market the part that really makes me smile is that we have spent no money on marketing. Uh, so the only marketing we've spent to this point are by giving gloves to instructors like yourselves, wanting feedback to make it better. So we're on our fourth iteration of glove right now. Uh, we're actually working on two other uh, gloves for the fire service that we hope to launch uh, probably in the next couple of years. One maybe even by the end of this year, which is our wildland glove. Uh, but we now we've got the Texas cuff glove uh, for the folks, uh, you know, down in that Houston area that I really didn't think was going to take off, but has for that Texas market, uh, kind of Kentucky market, even in Oklahoma in some cases. And uh, we've got a lot of largest cities using our, our product. Uh, Oklahoma City converted this year, uh, Buffalo, New York. Uh, we've got a couple large counties in Georgia and Florida now using our pro product. And uh, it's really neat to see folks uh, like, like a Tim Oak from Fire Engineering taking pictures in that Chicagoland area, and as I'm looking at these, these photos, our gloves are being used and being worn by a lot, of, a lot of people we didn't even know. I was looking at some pictures somebody tagged me on the other day uh, in Milwaukee that had a fire. I think it was Milwaukee and Waukesha. And the guys were wearing our gloves uh, at this fire. And I'm like, that's pretty, pretty darn cool that, uh, you know, the town that, that Jeffrey and I live in is 2,400 people, which is where the business itself is run out of. And uh, to know that we had some small part in the fire service to make it better is, uh, yeah, just really neat. Yeah, I, I, I can't say enough for the gloves that, I've had, that I have. I, I, I have four pair now. Uh, you know, I have, I have one that I use in my primary set. I have a backup pair. Uh, I got the squad ones, you know, and, and they, they've just been phenomenal. They, they hold up, they're durable, they're flexible. They, they're outstanding. So I'm, I'm excited to see what you guys do with it in the future and, and keep the growth going. So I think um, one of the keys, uh, yeah, one of the keys to that was we wanted to make it firefighter friendly. You know, I look at a lot of the companies in the fire service are, are just that they are. Uh, yeah. They're, they're just corporations and they, they truly aren't using product. So it was no different than with Leatherhead fire tools and Leatherhead metals and in Vanguard is, is we're firefighters. You know, we're actually using the product. So we want to make the best products we can through true feedback and, uh, and, and push the envelope a bit. So we've got a lightweight, flexible glove that if you're going out to do firefighting tasks and make rescues, we want you to be able to do that. Not have, you know, oven mitts that, that, that you're using that you can't feel, you know, your SCBA or feel your tools and, and uh, be able to rescue a victim. We just felt that that was counterintuitive. So we've been pushing the envelope on the glove side. And we want to continue to push the envelope with some of the other projects that we're working on as well that we think are pretty neat for the fire service. Awesome. And then kind of, kind of my last question before I kick this over to uh, Ladine, uh, this is kind of how I, I actually met you uh, 20 years ago was uh, the, the, the start of the mothership business. Uh, you know, so you are the owner of, uh, of Dingus Fire, which is a, a growing distribution company for fire equipment tools and, uh, all that here in the Midwest. Can you kind of give us the origins of, uh, of the business, where it's at, where it's going, um, and anything else you'd like to add as well? Sure. So the Dingus Fire Company is one of the largest fire equipment distribution companies in the Midwest. Uh, right now, we've got 20, about 20 full-time people, maybe 25 full-time people, uh, 60 to 65 independent contractors, uh, we cover off the states of Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Minnesota, Missouri, and Iowa. Uh, we do cell fire apparatus, which uh, is towing based out of Breda, Iowa. Uh, we're one of the largest distribution partners for Lion turnout gear, uh, Bullard thermal imaging, Amcus rescue tools, 
and Drager breathing apparatus. Uh, we're pretty proud of that fact. I always tell people we're just a bunch of hillbillies, you know, in, in, in small town USA, but we've got a pretty darn good business model that's allowed us to have, uh, you know, really nice growth. Uh, the business today has grown four times over the last five years, and that's primarily due to good people. Uh, I, my belief is we have the best human capital in the industry. Uh, matter of fact, Jeffrey's dad actually works for us. And I guess to go back, Jeffrey's dad, Jeff Bryant Sr., who's our chief operations officer, uh, came to me with this idea back in 2002 that he wanted to start a, a fire equipment distribution company in Amboy, Illinois. I think I looked at him like he had three heads. Um, I, I couldn't figure out how we were going to start a fire equipment company, you know, number one with no money. Uh, in the middle of nowhere with no product lines. And uh, he had a vision that he felt like the rural fire service uh, needed an outlet. And, and at the time, we're only being serviced by the large companies that, uh, that existed. So I listened to him, uh, thought he was crazy. And uh, over the next six months, uh, both Jeff Bryan and Lonnie Eisenberg would call me all the time, which Lonnie's a career firefighter paramedic in Mendota, great guy. And uh, they kept pushing me to, to jump in with him. So I did. About six months later, uh, we entered into winter, and at the time I was, uh, I was doing landscaping and doing uh, mowing uh, when I wasn't in the firehouse, and uh, started selling and really enjoyed the sales side of it. Uh, a few months after that, I threw my money in, and we had six partners initially. Over time, we whittled that down to four, and then I took over the business myself in 2011, and for many years, uh, you know, it, it, I won't say it was a dark time, but it was pretty tough. You know, we went from a, a, a business that was growing, uh, but we weren't making any money. Uh, we were having, uh, you know, a lot of debt issues. And at one point in, in 2011, 2012, we're almost bankrupt. And uh, we pulled ourselves up, you know, by the bootstraps and were able to make the company profitable uh, in mid to late 2011. And then about on a growth trajectory since then, including making two acquisitions of uh, Safety First in Wisconsin, where Nick is from, and uh, also a time emergency in Ross Common, Michigan. Uh, that took our team to about 20 people in 2017. And then uh, in 2018, we were up to about 40 and where we stand today, uh, 85 people in the, in the seven states. So we're, we're pretty darn proud of what, what we have and the people uh, that belong to our organization because most of them are firefighters. Uh, for many years, every person that you talk to barring maybe one or two actually uh, was a firefighter or was a paramedic or worked in law enforcement. And we're pretty darn proud of that fact. Even our uh, director of finance and operations went through fire training. And I think she was about 55 when she went through it, just so she could have that experience and understand what, we, what we've gone through. And I think that's important. And then in addition to that, we've created some technology for the fire service that uh, right now our sales guys use but we're looking forward to putting in the hands of firefighters all across the nation, maybe even all across the world um, at some point in the next couple of years. So we're pretty uh, proud of that as well. Thank you for sharing that. That's uh, I like how you put your director of finance through some fire training as well to make sure that he or she knew what was going down. Yeah. Um, so, so Nick, it's a she. And, she yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm actually trying to get her to uh, join a volunteer department in Wisconsin. So, I'm still lobbying for that. We'll see if that happens. I think she's about 56 uh, right now-ish, 57, but she's just a great individual. Probably, uh, I know way more physically active and fit than myself, so that's that's pretty awesome. And then uh, in addition to her, we put uh, our IT director through firefighting as well. He was a young man from Boston uh, that was a, a very active guy. He did, uh, well, he was a football player and then in college did rugby, but he had no fire experience. And uh, we got him on Amboy's fire department and uh, he got to, got to go in some fires before he moved uh, back out east. Now he's in New York, but yeah, super cool to see those things. And then to give that experience to people, even on the business side of what we do to have an appreciation for the folks in the field. Yeah, I wonder how many distribution companies can say that they've put almost all their members or all their members through some fire training. I can't imagine there's very many, if any, uh, other than you guys. Um, before we get to my next question, I just want to put a little teaser in there. Uh, once we get done here with the, with the interview, I'm super curious as to what else is in those notebooks that you alluded to earlier. Um, but continuing a with lot, the, a lot, Nick, a lot. I, I can't, I want to know, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, probe, probe you on this in a minute. 
but broad brushstrokes here. When it comes to the job, what's the American Fire Service doing correctly, and and what are we doing maybe uh, maybe wrong? Yeah, so I think correctly is is we're. I'll be quite honest with you. Training organizations like Fire Nuggets, uh, you know, like a lot of the fools organizations across the nation, and then there's also private groups and in, in small colleges like a Sauk Valley that still are trying to get down to that grassroots level uh, to get these young firefighters engaged early and, uh, you know, in, in trying to do the right thing. You know, I still believe in, in, in a good interior firefight. Um, I still believe that w- this is a blue collar job and, uh, and, and that every person that's in the fire service today, you know, you, you see the one percenters out there, but I look at us, we're protectors. And, uh, you know, whether you're a career firefighter, you're a suburban firefighter, you're a volunteer fire to, firefighter in the rural, that's what our job is. It's to protect our local communities. It's to protect our cities. And we are that first line of defense. You know, there's no 912. So when people call, the expectation is that we show up and we do the absolute best job that we can. But it goes back to what I just said, and it's that we show up. And that means young people showing up to training. That means young people showing up to all the calls, you know, Middle of the night, I know it's not popular. We've, we've all got a secondary job during the day, but uh, it's to be there for your, your community. And uh, so I love training organizations. I think we're, we're doing a lot of right things there. Um, you know, I think from the risk assessment standpoint, in some cases, we're doing a pretty good job there as well. Um, I can tell you dating back 20 years ago, um, we were, a, I would say a very aggressive fire department in Rockford, which was what actually I really enjoyed. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure we went defensive on too many fires. Were there a few that maybe we should have taken a step back or taken pause and, and, and reevaluated? Yeah, maybe. And uh, I'll never forget one day I had a company officer shipped in. And, uh, and this is before we had any red X's on buildings where, we, you know, the, the buildings you don't go into. Um, he said, listen, if we get a, catch a fire in one of these vacant houses that we know is, is real crummy, you know, we, we might, might not go in tonight. And at first, uh, the, the whole crew, including myself, was young. And I'm like, man, this guy is, you know, kind of a wimp. You know, why would we ever consider an aggressive fire department not going interior on a fire? And I think the older you get, you, you, you kind of think about that a little bit. And I think the best way that somebody equated that to me was if we go to a building and we've got fire showing from side A, B, C, and D from top to bottom, uh, that, that building's been shot in the head. And if we had a person on the street that was shot in the head, are they viable? And I think that 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 does make me think about those things when we pull up on a call. And I think it also, you know, from the perspective of being in the rural fire service, I've got to be respectful to the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, right? I never know from day to day who's going to jump in that engine, you know, and show up. So we got to make sure that they go home to their families. Does that mean we don't go inside? Absolutely not. Uh, my, my job, if we can, is to make sure that we, we put them in a safe and as safe environment as we can, uh, but we take them home to their families and, and we make that risk assessment immediately. We make those life safety decisions immediately, the good tactical decisions, and uh, we move forward. And I think we need to continue to teach that to our young people and making, making those decisions. You know, I think it goes back to your second question of what are we doing wrong? I think we need to get to these young people sooner. Um, I look at Departments like a Rockford is an example that when I tested, I think 1,200 people tested. I think the last test there, it was sub 300. That disheartens me. Uh, the same thing I heard down in Springfield, Illinois, which uh, when, when the O'Connells went through or when Colin tested, I want to say he said there was 1,000 or 1,100. And now they, they put them all in a couple of classrooms. I worry about that. You know, I worry about people today not wanting to get into public service, you know, and not to get into the politics side, but that really worries me a lot. Um, I worry about, you know, the decline in volunteerism across the nation. And how do we get these young people engaged to want to be those protectors of our communities? And I think the only way to do that, or one of the ways to do that, is to get them engaged, you know, very young. You know, if we can somehow tie that in to, to have that feeling of, of, of that sense of community and get them tied into, you know, maybe even the military at some point, um, there's a big, uh, I, I think there's a big, tie-in with the fire service and EMS world and law enforcement that, that we need to harness at an early age. And right now, the path for people in general is the path of least resistance, which means if it's not easy, they don't want to do it. And in uh, the fire service, as you guys know, is hard. Training is hard. Uh, the things that we do on a daily basis are hard. Getting up in the middle of the night to go on a, a work and fire for three, four hours and then show up to work at 7 a.m., 
that's not easy, is it? And, uh, and to get people to, to see that we need people to be there for your communities is, uh, is a difficult task right now. And we just need to, need to do that, I think, at a younger age. Yeah, I think what you're saying as far as getting to the young people earlier and, and like pinpointing what younger people we want to, to, uh, to bring into the job or at least try to recruit, I think is important. And it's something that we're noticing where I'm at. You know, I work for a, a suburban fire department. We're not that big. We're kind of geographically an island, right? Um, we can't draw from a population of, you know, 500,000 people under 18. We, we just don't have that here. And our numbers for people applying here are smaller and smaller every year. So we're living that same problem. And obviously the, the two of us aren't alone in this problem. Um, I'm just curious to what our solutions are gonna be as far as uh, the broad fire service to, the, to these issues going forward. If you yeah, had a question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chief. Go ahead, Nick. No, no, I was just gonna say, you know, I guess just to piggyback on that a little bit is again, if we can get these young people at an early age, I think it's important, but we need to figure out a way to recognize the people that are volunteering and working in your communities. And I would say, you know, the public education side is one that, uh, that I think people wanna be, uh, I call it self-actualization, right? It's Maslow's theory of hierarchy that says everybody wants to be recognized. And if we can find a way to tie that in, I think that, uh, you know, it may retain more people for a longer period. Uh, the other part is, is I love math. And I've been trying to figure out the math problem to somehow incentivize uh, in the volunteer world or in the paid on call world, people for a longer period, which means that, you know, they would get their stipend right along based on an hourly rate, no different than anywhere else. But if we could find a way, maybe through the state or federal government to give not a retirement necessarily, but some bump, you know what, if you stay engaged for five years and you meet so many calls, then you get this block of money at maybe age 55 or 62 or whenever you want to retire. You make it 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Uh, then I think there would be a huge benefit to the fire service, especially the rural fire service and uh, in the EMS world as well. And that uh, we would retain people for a longer period. We would keep them engaged. And then, uh, yeah, who knows when you retire from your regular job, if I've got a block of money sitting there, and I can see it through technology and maybe it's worth, you know, 20, 50, a hundred thousand bucks. And I get a new bass boat or a cabin in the North woods, then that's a win for everybody. And, but at least there's an incentive out there for people to volunteer and stay engaged for a long period of, of time. Uh, because I think that's, what's missing. You know, we see young people come in, which I'm always excited about. They typically stay three to five years within an organization. The really good ones tend to then move on to a career uh, in the fire service. We lost two of them this year, and uh, which makes us very proud, but we need to be able to bring in more young people and then find a way for the people not staying uh, or going into the career fire service to stay engaged in their local communities. You know, you talked about you're in a small city. I'm in a small town. You know, I'm, I'm in a town of 386 people. So the, our pool of people to volunteer is extremely small. We're lucky that about 10% of our, our community does volunteer, uh, which I'd love to have even more than that. But to try to keep all of those people engaged and to keep their certifications up is extremely difficult. And I think that's the challenge we're facing across the nation at this time. And I'm hopeful if we get enough bright minds together that uh, you know, we can solve this over the next decade. Yeah, I like your thoughts there. Uh, if you had a crystal ball and could see into the future, what would fire service training and learning look like in 10 to 20 years? Yeah, I think we're going to go away. Uh, and I think this is unfortunate, by the way, because our number one, our job is not risk averse, right? Uh, well, number one, life's not risk averse, but uh, the fire service is not risk averse. You know, that's why I still believe in, in doing an interior firefight when, when conditions dictate it. Um, that's why I think, you know, we've got to aggressively overhaul things. We have to open things up, uh, but we have to put ourselves out there, not just on the, the incidents that we go on, but also on, on the training side of things is uh, we have to show up. We have to do the work. We have to put in the time. Uh, but I think we'll probably be going away from a lot of the Class A training that we, we've seen uh, forever. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll have more clean burning, either clean burning fires or more digital simulations, which I'm not sure, again, it kind of goes back to what I said earlier. You can throw a thousand books in a fire and never put one out. And I'm not sure how effective, I'm not saying they're bad at all, but how effective digital simulation is going to play you know, into reading smoke, 
into understanding fire conditions, into your comfortability in, in moving around with your PPE on and reading those conditions and, and what that heat signature feels like, uh, you know, in real life. And, you know, do I think it may be safer? Well, the answer is maybe, and the training may be safer, but does it put us more at risk when we're actually at an incident? And I think, you know, time is only going to tell that, but I think the way that we train and train a lot of our folks um, is going to change drastically over the next, you know, 10 to 20 years for good or bad. I like what you said there, where you're talking about sometimes safety on the front end or, or increased safety on the front end sometimes might lead to decreased safety on the back end. I think that's something that, that anyone who's really thought about risk and tolerance and aversion has, has come to the conclusion of at times. And then at times, just because it's safer on the front end, you might have a net negative uh, safety factor right there, which I think sometimes people don't always understand. I think when it comes to search training, I think that's exactly what we've done. And, and, and this is just me speculating right now, but like when it comes to how fire one is taught, how search is taught in fire one in the three states that I've have some experience in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Colorado, you have to have a hose line with you when you're searching. You have to be holding on to your partner. You have to be touching a wall. You have to be sounding. Um, uh, and then searching as well. And I, I feel like there was a discussion with, with these people who are making the decisions. They're like, well, how can we make search safer? Well, give them a hose line. Perfect. How else can we make it safer? Let's make sure that they never lose contact with the wall. Okay. I like that. Now, what are we going to do next? Let's make sure that they never lose contact with their partner. There you go. Now, what else can we do? Let's make sure that we're sounding as we go as well. I don't know how many hands these people have, um, but you're running out of hands pretty darn quick. And now you want to search on top of it. And all these things to kind of enhance the safety on the front end all lead to a much slower search on the back end. Um, and that search is not only less safe for the civilians, but just kind of by definition, it potentially will be less safe for us as well. So I see this kind of common thread throughout the fire service in a handful of different kind of variations. Um, and and I, I appreciate you, you bringing that up. Um, we have some rapid fire questions as we kind of close this out. Um, what's the best best fire class you've ever been to? I think the art of reading smoke, and I've taken it a couple of times. So Dave Dotson uh, was phenomenal, but Ed Enright taught one I took about a decade, I'm sorry, right, two decades ago, and it was phenomenal. Yeah, great class. Okay, best conference you've ever been to? Uh, FDIC, uh, multiple times. I've been to FDIC, and I've, I've had some really good trainings down there. And then uh, a lot of the local ones, uh, we've done some Blackhawk training here uh, that actually Jeffrey's dad, Jeff Bryan Sr. has put on. And I've seen some phenomenal speakers that uh, I, I never thought I would be able to, number one, afford, but be able to see, and we were able to see those uh, locally. Yeah, anyone in the Amboy area, the, the Bryants and everyone else there does amazing work and brings in some of the best instructors around. Um, so they're, they're kind of spoiled for a smaller department. I'm, I'm jealous of them. Okay. And this one doesn't have to be fired. These next two don't have to be fire service related at all. Um, what's the best book you've ever read? Best book ever hunting El Chapo because a friend of mine is the guy that caught El Chapo. So, um, it was neat to read his trials and tribulations on catching, you know, one of the, the number one, uh, drug kingpins in the world. And then to know that guy personally, uh, was pretty darn cool. When did he catch him? The first time or second time or yeah, third time? Yeah, he caught him the first time. And nice. uh, I went, went to college with him and uh, we had a lot of shenanigans together in the fire service uh, about 25 years ago. So very neat to see him go from the fire service uh, to the local law enforcement and then into the DEA and to, to see him as, as successful as he's been. Did he write that book? He did. Yep. Okay, nice. What's his, uh, what's his name? Uh, Drew Hogan. Thank you. Okay. Uh, do you listen to podcasts at all? And if so, is there something that we should be listening to? Uh, so I like common sense and thinking outside the box. Uh, and, and I'm a Joe Rogan fan. Uh, for many years, uh, Joe Rogan to me was a little bit brash, uh, probably said a lot of things that I maybe didn't necessarily agree with, but I'm going to, uh, in my own opinion, um, he's an extremely intelligent man that questions a lot of things in a thoughtful way and, uh, and maybe goes against the grain and thinking, you know, a lot of the time, but extremely intelligent, 
extremely thought-provoking. I, I can't say I 100% agree with him all the time, but I always enjoy listening to his podcast because typically they're uncut. So you, uh, you, know, you hear rapid-fire questioning for two or three hours on somebody that I think he does to break people down. But uh, it's really neat to listen to that perspective, and then you can formulate your own conclusions from that. Yeah, well said. He's he just great at what he does. Um, I don't think anyone's going to agree with anything that anybody says 100% of the time. Um, but he brings in great guests. He, he, I love how he thinks. And there's a reason that he's, I think, the number one podcast in the world. So uh, I like that one. Um, anything else you want to add before we kind of sign off here, Nick? No, just appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to have a chat. Um, I think Jeffrey probably told you, Nick, I, I love the fire service and, and, and I hope we'll always love the fire service. You know, we just need to figure out collectively how we can bring more people into, you know, the next decade, the next generation or generations of, of firefighters and EMS folks. Because I can tell you right now, it's not easy. And, and my, I feel, my gut tells me, you know, since COVID, it's been even more difficult. You know, we spent almost a year, probably half a year that we couldn't train. And, uh, you know, we're not keeping people engaged or as engaged as they were. Um, again, people take the path of least resistance, which means not showing up as much and, uh, and not wanting to do the things in life that are difficult. And in this case, it, it's re re directly related to the fire and EMS world. And I, I really am concerned about that, you know, from a, a forward going basis. But, you know, I, I think there's enough people in the world and in some cases, probably silently, uh, that are going to start to become vocal on trying to recruit people, uh, trying to get people engaged, trying to get them passionate about the job. Uh, so hopefully, uh, you know, we're protected for the next, uh, you know, the next hundred years. But, you know, who knows? Uh, I think all we can do individually is our best. And, uh, you know, every night go to bed uh, knowing that, all, that, I, that I did my best or try to do my best, you know, for myself, for my family and my community. Yeah, wise words right there. I like what you said about inertia, too. And, and kind of once that inertia slows down, it's really hard to, to get something moving again. Um, I've been hearing your name for years now from Jeff, and I'm excited to finally meet you and sit down with you and, and learn from you. So thank you again for coming on here. We really appreciate that. Um, thank you to everyone else who listened. Uh, and, and Nick, again, thank you one more time. We really appreciate you kind of sharing the message and spreading the cure. So much appreciated, brother. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Thank you, Jeffrey. I appreciate you having me on.